All right. Good evening. Uh, obviously, continue to eat and finish up as we uh, as we move along here. Um, my name is Neil Carmichael. Hey, JJ. Hey, JJ. Uh, it's my my privilege to be here uh, tonight. Uh, a lot of you, uh, a good number of you, know me, but a lot of you don't. Uh, and I know when I'm listening to a speaker, I'd like to know something about that person. You know, like street creds kind of thing. You know, before you kind of get rolling. So I'll either have credibility after this or none whatsoever. So we'll just have to have to take it and see how it, uh, how, it, how it flows. Well, I guess one of the most important things for you to know is that I am a Christian. Yeah. <clears throat> Great place to start, right? Uh, my wife and I uh, became Christians together, sitting on a couch in a small efficiency apartment outside of San Antonio, Texas, on April 7th, 1979. Uh, and that's a story for another day. It's really a, a great, great story. Uh, so Barbara and I have been married for 48 years. We were very, very young. You know, in South Carolina, you get married when you were 12. You know, kind of, it was kind of nice you know, kind of deal. <clears throat> we have two adult children, a uh, son and a daughter, and uh, we have a granddaughter, first grandchild, uh, that was born August 1st. So, you know, we were really, really happy and excited about that. I was born in London, England, and uh, came to this country when I was three years old, moved to Durham, actually, Butner, North Carolina. Anybody know where Butner, North Carolina is? I'm sorry if you know where it is. Yeah, there's a federal prison there now, right? Yeah, it wasn't there when we moved there. It was not there. Uh, and we moved to Charlotte when I was nine, so I basically grew up here in Charlotte, went to South Met, Quail Hollow, and uh, UNCC. Um, and after... Um, you know, graduation and all that. I went in the Air Force for four years. And uh, then um, uh, spent 36 years in the field of dispute resolution, arbitration and mediation services. Sounds rather esoteric, doesn't it? It's, you know. uh, and what I did for most of that time was train people how to arbitrate cases and train people how to be mediators. So dispute resolution, basically my field. Uh, and uh, I did mention I went to UNCC, and then when I was 50 years old, I went to RTS Seminary uh, and uh, graduated after five and a half years, just down the road here, RTS, uh, and graduated after about five and a half years, um, and in addition to all of that, I am an author. I have two books out. Uh, one is a 31-day devotional, the theme of which is God's Peace in Your Life, uh, and the second one is a novel, which came out in January of last year, uh, which uh, is a biblical historical novel that takes place in Jerusalem and Rome during the period of the book of Acts. So, uh, and I have another book that's uh, hopefully coming out, another novel coming out hopefully in the spring of 2024, if I can finish writing it. Uh, that's always, always a challenge. Other things like academy and preparation kind of, you know, take time away from that kind of stuff. But in any event, uh, I hope it comes out in the spring of, uh, of next year. Uh, all righty. So let's kind of jump into where we're going to be uh, going tonight. We're continuing our New Testament redemptive history. And our topic for tonight, overarching topic for tonight, is Jesus our Messiah has come. And the uh, theme for tonight um, did this get, did I turn this off? Let's see. It did. All right. And, you know, they say that there are three things that you should never work with. Technology, animals, and children. So, so breaking one today. All right. Uh, the bottom line, 
for our uh, time this evening is this, that Jesus defined the true meaning of the Messiah's role in the story of redemption, and in the process, turned the religious world of the Jews upside down. We're going to be covering these topics, and you see them listed on uh, your, the sheet that's on the table for your table discussions. Uh, so the subtopics for tonight are the Messiah figure in Judaism, John the Baptist, uh, the fullness of time, uh, the world as it was at the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus revealed as the Messiah, Jesus' baptism, which I've called the anointing of the anointed, and Jesus' temptation by the devil. Now, as we kind of go through our time together tonight, uh, I'm going to be asking some general questions, and anybody who feels they want to answer the questions, please do so. We've got two people who are designated to be the microphone, ro the roaming microphone holders. So Kelly over here will be on this side of the room, and Sarah over here will be on this side of the room. So ladies, get ready, because here comes my first question. All right. So, all right, we're starting here with uh, Jesus the Messiah, figure, the Messiah figure in Judaism. What enters your mind when you hear the word Messiah? Savior. What else? Redeemer. Hope of Israel. Okay. Good. Rescuer. Jesus. Promise? Okay. Good. What? Good. Okay. Uh, no one said handle. <laughs> Handles Messiah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's almost Christmas, right? You know? Um, <clears throat> so what does the Messiah do? What? Rule the Messiah rules. Rules what? Rules the world. Redeems? Redeems what? Or who? The people he loves. Establishes a new kingdom of God, kingdom of God. This side of the room is real talkative, guys, and you're going to have your work cut out for you. Okay. Those, those are great. Um, and when we say Jesus our Messiah has come, what do we mean? What? Yeah, he finally showed up. <laughs> and so, Jesus has finally come, right? Jesus has finally come. Right. The concept of the Messiah has its roots deep in Israel's history. Uh, you know, the people, uh, the Israelites, were aware very early on that they were the chosen people of God to bring blessings to the nation. That's what they knew they were to do. And in their history, God had raised up leaders and deliverers throughout the period of their uh, entire history, and they believed he would do so again at the end of the age in a figure known as the Messiah. In Hebrew theology, the Messiah is going to be a Jewish king from the line of King who? King David. Okay. And this Messiah is going to usher in a new era in history of the people of God. He's going to rule the people of God during what the Israelites believe to be, and the Jews they believe to be, an Eden-like Messianic age. An Eden-like Messianic age. 
In the concept of the Messiah, there are four general elements that come into play. One, he is chosen by God. Two, he is anointed at God's initiative. Three, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And fourth, he performs mighty acts. Now, from the Jewish perspective, the mighty acts do not necessarily mean miracles. As a matter of fact, they probably don't have that connotation. Just mighty acts. Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning anointed or chosen one. That's what Messiah means, anointed or chosen one. The Greek uh, translation of Messiah is what? Anybody know? Okay, the, the Greek is Christos. The Greek is Christos. The English translation of Christos is Christ. Okay. So when we read anywhere in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, in your mind you'd be saying Jesus the Messiah. Where we see Christ Jesus, it would be the Messiah Jesus. And where we just see Christ, we should think and read the Messiah. And it's important to know that the Messiah, attributed you know, in, in reference to Jesus, is a title. It's a title, Jesus the Messiah. Joseph and Mary Christ were not Jesus' parents. <laughs> we all good with that? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, it's a title that he was given. Okay. During the Old Testament period, the term Messiah was really bestowed upon someone who had attained a position of nobility or of greatness. And it wasn't necessarily used only to, uh, in in the Jewish culture. It was used at other places too, but primarily the Jewish culture. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew Bible, before it was translated into Greek, which is the Septuagint, which Kathy mentioned last week, Cyrus the Great, who was the king of Persia, was referred to in the Hebrew Bible as Messiah, an anointed one, and he got that because he was the one who allowed the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem in the post-exilic period. Uh, So, also, the office of Messiah, if we would, uh, arose contemporaneously with the development of kingship, okay, the kings of Israel. Okay, it developed around the same time. We see this specifically in 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> Samuel, uh, as you know, you know the story, the, the Hebrews wanted to be like the other nations around them, right? But God wanted him, God wanted himself to be their king, right? But they didn't want God to be their king. They rebelled. And what do they want? They wanted a king like everybody else had kings, okay? And so, of course, Samuel said, no, no, no. But God finally said, it relented, said, let them have what they want. So God uh, spoke to Samuel, and Samuel went, and, and he anointed two kings in Israel. Who was the first? Who's the second? Very good. All right. And so uh, once these kings were anointed, they were seen as being authorized to act on God's behalf, to, be, to act on God's behalf. 
Now, of all the kings we read about in the Old Testament, both in Israel and in Judah, only two got this anointing. And who were they? Saul and David. Saul and David, just those two. Okay. Now, in time, David became the prototype of the Messiah King for two reasons. One, in comparison to all the other kings that we read about, he was the best. Despite the fact that he was a sinner and he you know, was a murderer and, and all of that, in comparison to all the others, he was the best. And so he became esteemed as the epitome of the kings of, of Israel. The second thing that led to um, his being the prototype of the Messiah King was something that Kathy talked about last week, and that is this. Somebody, somebody read this for us, the Davidic Covenant. Where's the microphone? Just somebody at the table with a microphone. I'll read it. Okay. Okay. Got is it next. turned on? Yeah. Okay. Good. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I, look to, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Okay, good. Thank you, Kelly. Is this covenant conditional or unconditional? Unconditional. Okay, why is it unconditional? <laughs> what? Because there's no conditions. <laughs> A biblical scholar among us. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, because it doesn't depend on anybody but God himself fulfilling a promise he made. So it's unconditional. And so these two factors that you know, David being the epitome of the kings uh, of, of Israel and in, uh, in conjunction with him being uh, and having the Davidic covenant associated with him, these two things contributed to Israel's belief that there would be a future Messiah, a righteous king, uh, who would be like David and would appear at the end of the age. And after the end of the age, he's going to inaugurate the Messianic age. Okay. The Old Testament writers <clears throat> looked forward to this Messianic age. And it is going to be, in Jewish um, theology, it's going to be uh, inaugurated by God's decisive intervention in human history. And he's going to establish this eternal kingdom that will be ruled by his chosen one, the Messiah. Okay. In the New Testament, there's a similar concept, and we know it as what? Let me describe it. The Messianic age is going to be characterized by a restoration and renewal of God's people and all of creation. It will be an era of righteousness, justice, prosperity, global peace and harmony, all brought about by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, this concept is called the kingdom of God. Right, we talked about that last week. So the Messianic age and the kingdom of God are basically synonymous, although the Jews see it differently than the Christians see it, because we see Jesus as the Messiah, and the Jews see the Messiah is yet to come. Yes, Beth? 
yes, that's a great way of putting it. The Messianic age is a type of the kingdom of God because okay? they have a lot of characteristics that are similar. Right? The idealism of the Messianic age is captured in two well-known verses from the book of Isaiah, and here they are. Uh, if somebody could read those for us, please. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift sword against nation, and they will no longer study warfare. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy all on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, this brings us to our first discussion question. What does the concept of Messiahship add to your understanding of the redemptive story? Take a couple of minutes to talk about that at your tables and see what you can come up with. Okay, time's up. <clears throat> uh, let's go ahead and come back. Come back to the front here. Any table, anybody from any tables want to share what they talked about? Any point? There was a lot of talking. So I assume somebody said something important. But then again, maybe not. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Carrie. <laughs> um, so we talked about how the Messiah is essential to the redemptive story. Like the story doesn't exist without the concept of the Messiah. And then we talked about how, you know, it's such an encouragement because the Messiah also is you know, coming from the Abrahamic covenant where it's a blessing to all nations. It's not just for Israel. The Messiah is not just for Israel. Um, and then we talked about how the Messiah really completes the redemptive story and that if we truly understand the Messiah as described in all of the prophecies, Jesus' first coming didn't fulfill every single one of those things. Right. And so the story actually isn't over yet. That's right. And right. that understanding messiahship helps us understand that okay that's great great thank you uh, anybody else okay here's one key point and there are others but here's one that kind of one takeaway the israelites believe that despite their repeated history of turning away from god god would someday raise up an anointed ruler who would deliver them once and for all and create an everlasting age of peace and prosperity. And that's one, one takeaway that we can take uh, from this notion, this concept of Jesus or just the Messiah, the Messiahship. All right, we're going to spend just a couple of minutes here talking about John the Baptist. And we're going to come back to John the Baptist a little bit later on when we talk about Jesus' baptism. But at this point, let's just ask, what do we know about John the Baptist? He's a wild man. Why is he a wild man? Yeah, that's right. He did. That's right. He was. A, he he had. I mean, God sent him on a mission, and he stuck with the mission. 
out in the wilderness, eating, eating honey and wearing sandals and, you know, locusts. That's right, locusts and honey. Yeah. He goes, what? He called for repentance. What else do we know about him? Okay, very good. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, it was, so he said over here, he baptized Jesus. How else is he related to Jesus? He's his cousin. All right, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, first cousin. All right, so John the Baptist is one of the first major characters we encounter in almost every one of the Gospels. He appears in the first chapters of Mark Luke and John, and he is the main topic at the beginning of the third chapter of Matthew. His, uh, his ministry is the bridge between the two parts of the redemptive story that Bob talked about in our first week, and those two parts of the redemptive story are what? The Old and New Testaments, those are the two parts, and he is the bridge between those two. And these two scriptures really hammer home that point. So this first one, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. And then Luke 1, 7 and he, John the Baptist, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to, uh, disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, as it appears in, in, our, in our Bibles. Uh, and so right at the end of his, his, um, his book, uh, he makes this, this prophecy about, uh, about the, the one who is to come to prepare the way of the Lord. And we see some of the exact verbiage uh, used by Luke in his gospel. And so this really hammers home the point that John is the bridge. He's foretold about in the last book of the Old Testament, and he appears right off the bat in, in almost all of the gospels in the New Testament. So... Um, we're not going to do table discussion here. I'm just going to toss this out. So what is John the Baptist's significance in the redemptive story? Okay. He announced what? He announced the coming of the Messiah. And what else? To prepare the hearts of the people. And he baptized Jesus. And he what? He's, he announced the kingdom of God is at hand and redemption. Call for repentance. Okay. That's right. So there's a reference. For, he makes references back to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Okay. Uh, Dale? Okay, he, he helps validate Jesus as the Messiah. All right, very good. Uh, so again, uh, in all of that, all the things that you just mentioned, he serves as the bridge between what was expected and what came. What was expected in the Old Testament and what came in the New Testament. Yep. In the Bible story video we had last week, in the book of, I believe it was Matthew, 
alternative theory, but the alternative in between is neutral in his proclamation of whether or not he was expound on that. So you're saying that John John was saying John was neutral on whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah, that's the way it's presented in that. Okay. Yeah. And Scott, that you say you took exception to that? Okay, doesn't sound right to me either. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that would necessarily be the case. I mean, uh, John was quite clear in that he was the one who was prepared the way of the Lord. Now, although he, when he sees Jesus, he wonders, "Are you the one?" Yeah, yeah. Are you the one? All right. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. Uh, so there may have been some indication that, that he wasn't quite sure, but I don't think it's as you know, clear, clear cut as they made it sound in the video. So, okay. Right. Any other, yes, Kathy. Uh, thanks, Kathy. Yeah, a great example of going to scripture rather than commentary. So very good. Does that mean I'm finished for the night? <laughs> yeah, just sit down. You guys can read the Bible for the next hour and a half. Um, all right, moving on to the uh, oh, this, this discussion point here. Uh, just key point. Uh, John the Baptist serves as the bridge between the Old and New Testament. Specifically, he was called by God to be the voice in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Messiah by proclaiming uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to come back to that uh, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins when we talk about Jesus' baptism in just a, in just a little bit. All right, let's move on to the fullness of time. What things were like, what was the environment like, the climate when we uh, opened up our Bibles to the New Testament, what was the world like at that point in time? Uh, in Galatians 4.4, the Apostle Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Paul could have just as easily said, God has set the stage. God has set the stage for the advent of his chosen one. Last week, you spent a little bit of time talking about the intertestamental period, the time between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. And how many years was that? 400 years. Um, What are some of the things that you gleaned from your readings and discussion last week? What uh, some significant events that happened during the intertestamental period. Alexander conquers the world, dies at a young age, leaves no heirs. What else? Right, fighting among the generals to take over his kingdom. They were they battled in to survive the, the, the fray. He took it from there. The temple system shuts down. Else, the main factions. You know what they are, JJ? Can you unpack that a little bit? You just ate a pretzel. Yeah, she saw. She she knew I was going to ask, and there goes the pretzel. Right. (laughs) Okay. And the zealots. Very good. Very good. Okay. See, they bailed you out. This table bailed you out. Remember that. Be kind to them. Uh, right? Okay. And who led that, who led that revolt? Remember which one of the Maccabees it was? Yeah. 
the hammer. Jacobus, Judas, Judas, Judas the hammer. What a, what a great nickname. You know, he sounds like a wrestler, doesn't he? <laughs> you know, just great. What else? Anything else significant that you want to mention that happened during? Herod yeah. and his family, Keith? Okay, uh, so there was this cross-cultural kind of pollination. Uh, not so much the Romans as the Greeks, and that was kind of one of the, one of the sticking points, uh, because the seeds of the Greek culture were sown within the Israelite culture during this 400-year intertestamental period. Of course, Palestine became part of the Roman Empire, and as Scott mentioned, there were several, um, you know, at least one major revolt, uh, the Maccabean Revolt, but there were other Messianic revolts, which were basically Jews here and there trying to overthrow their oppressors in the hopes that the Messiah would appear on the scene. Okay, so again, the Maccabean Revolt was the primary one, but there were others too, but all with the same kind of goal, to facilitate the coming or the rising up of the Messiah. And Kathy mentioned that there was this, uh, during this period of time where the Hasmoneans reigned, it was relatively peaceful. There was no outward attacks on the Jews, but they had inward strife. They had this period of inward strife. And it was basically a civil war. And you know what the issue was driving the civil war? The pro-Hellenistic Jews and the anti-Hellenistic Jews. Now, going back to last week, what is Hellenism? The Greek culture, okay. So the Greek culture was making its way into the Jewish culture, and there were some Jews who thought, that's great, it's fine with us. And there were others who were going, no way, we don't want to be contaminated by that culture. And so a civil war really did break out between these two factions uh, or you know, beliefs. And as a result of that, Judaism became increasingly militant and began to conceive for the first time, really, that its coming Messiah was going to be a military conqueror. Now, this is crucial to the mindset of the Jews when Jesus appears on the scene. Okay, so make, kind of put that in your parking lot. We're going to come back to it. As 21st century American Gentile Christians we're at a disadvantage at trying to understand the New Testament world because we don't have a Jewish mindset. You know, no one's fault, right? It's just the way, it's just the way it is. Um, and so uh, we just don't have that understanding of the world in which the Messiah came. So what we want to do for at least a little bit here is try to unpack some of that to give us a little bit more of a clearer picture of what this world was like when Jesus appeared on the scene. So again, God meticulously set the scene for Jesus' coming. So let's first take a look at the religious climate at the time of the close of the Old Testament. Okay. The general picture that we get in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, is that the long years of Israel's exile did basically nothing to change the hearts of the people. And we saw this time and time again throughout our study last fall and early this year about on, on the Old Testament that they, the, the Jews would, uh, the Hebrews would always, at some point in time, rebel against God. And they continue to do so at the end of the Old Testament period. Uh, Malachi ex, uh, exposes just how corrupt the post-exilic 
Hebrews were after they came back from Babylon. And so that we find the Jews are still in rebellion against God and temple worship is corrupted. And there's the end of the Old Testament with the promise of the Messiah still hanging out there. Okay. One of the other things that we learn from Malachi, and we saw this in one of the scriptures read earlier, is that he announces that the day of the Lord is coming, the end of the age. And it's going to be a day of divine judgments, a day of divine judgments in which Israel is going to be purified and a remnant will remain. So that's how things stand at the end of the Old Testament period. Now, let's look at the, the religious uh, climate at the opening of the New Testament. Uh, last week, Kathy and Anishab introduced you to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were not only religious parties, they were political parties uh, to, to boot. And they dominated Jewish religious uh, life and practice. The Pharisees developed in opposition to something that Simon Maccabees did. Remember, Judas Maccabeus, he died, and his brother Simon took over and did what? He, he, he consolidated three offices in one. What were they? All right, priest, prophet, and king. So basically, he took over the religious, military, and uh, the political offices. Uh, and this was something that the Pharisees, this group, did not like. They thought it was inappropriate to do that, especially they objected to the combining of the, the offices of king and priest, because they believe only the Messiah should have those two offices at the same time. And as a matter of fact, the name Pharisee means separatist or to separate. Now, some believe that that stems from there. If you read about it in the New Testament, we see that they're kind of standing away from society. They're setting themselves aside or apart from society, separating from themselves, which is somewhat true. But their real name does come from the fact that they were against, they were anti-combining uh, of these two offices. They wanted them to be separate, the, king, uh, the uh, kingly office and the priestly office. Uh, the Pharisees did believe in a coming Messiah who would herald a new era of world peace. And they were, for the most part, the blue-collar guys. Their audience was the rank-and-file Jewish population, just the regular, ordinary, everyday people. Okay. Uh, and they resisted Hellenization. On the other hand, we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were elitists. They were wealthy and influential members of the aristocracy. Uh, they come from the priestly family of the Zadokites. And Zadok, okay, the Zadokites, Zadok was the high priest during the time of King David and King Solomon. So they trace their lineage all the way back to, to, that, to that group. And they embraced Hellenization. So we still see these elements of the civil war fought years earlier uh, in the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Okay. So Jewish life as a whole at the opening of the Old Testament uh, was a system that was more a matter of form than substance. Now, the simple laws of God had been replaced by cumbersome human interventions. And Judaism, for the most part, became less and less about God's current reign over his people and more and more 
about the future reign of the Messiah to come at the end of the age who would restore the creation. So they were no longer really looking at the Messiah for today in some respects. They really had this future concept uh, that they were really you know, trying, trying to look, look forward to. And one other development that came out of the intertestamental period was the synagogue. Because of the dispersion, uh, diaspora of the Jews throughout the Roman Empire, they needed a place to worship, not the temple, but a place where they could read the scripture and congregate, and that's where the synagogues came from. So that's when the synagogues came into being, uh, was during the intertestamental period. Uh, Back up. Um, Now, one of the most interesting things that we see when we read the New Testament is the incompatibility of the present environment with the message that Jesus was bringing. And that shouldn't be lost in anybody. If you've read any of the Gospels, you see the antagonism that the established religious order has against what Jesus is preaching and what he's trying to do. George Eldon Ladd, in his book, A Theology of the New Testament, says this, the gospel accounts coupled with the persecution of the early church that you read about in the book of Acts, clearly show the incompatibility of Jesus' message with that of the religious establishment, primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What I'd like to do at this point is share with you a scene from uh, my first novel, the one I mentioned earlier. The title of the novel is The Thorn. And one of the things that I wanted to convey in that, in that story was just exactly how incompatible Jesus' preaching and teaching was vis-a-vis the established religious order. So uh, the, um, th- just kind of set the scene for you here. This scene takes place after Jesus' um, crucifixion and the resurrection. It also takes place after the day of Pentecost. The scene is a group of Pharisees sitting around talking about their predicament, about this Jesus, Jesus movement that has arisen. The leader of, this, of the discussion is a Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who later, as we know, if you read the book of Acts, is who? Paul the Apostle. Okay. So at this point, Saul of Tarsus is leading this discussion about the predicament that they find themselves in vis-a-vis the new order of uh, the Jesus uh, Jesus movement. We agree, several of the men around the table shouted, echoing Saul's concern about Jesus' followers. Like Saul, all the men were Pharisees. To a man, they knew something in the growing Jesus movement had struck at the very core of the law of Moses. To a man, they believed all of life must be lived under the control of God's law. They fervently believed that meticulous observance of the body of uh, interpretations, expansions, and applications of the law they had developed over the past hundred years was the basis for one's righteousness. Eternal life was only granted based on faithfulness in keeping the law. Yet Jesus' teachings stood in strident opposition to their own. He taught that their quest for purity had deteriorated into an ever-increasing complex web of regulations. He charged that many of the regulations designed to prevent people from transgressing the law weren't even related to the law. And worse, he charged that the regulations put people in spiritual bondage by challenging their self-appointed authority 
as the arbiters of righteous living, Jesus had begun to emerge as the higher authority, a threat the Pharisees could not ignore. Tobit, Saul's closest confidant and ally, stood to address the group. We all agree the movement must be stopped. Our leaders worked too hard to silence the Nazarene, to now have our authority and the law of Moses threatened by his misguided followers. He stepped closer to Saul to emphasize their unity on the matter. Even those among the people who disagree with us recognize we are the authority over religious matters. Being fervently loyal to God and zealous of the Scriptures has served us well. Until now, Saul said, expressing disdain for the predicament the Pharisees found themselves in. The Nazarene did us no favors by calling us whitewashed tombs. He convinced many people that our display of righteousness is just a pretense, seeing that inside we were full of dead men's bones. He threatened our relevance, Eric, another influential Pharisee, grumbled, revealing the real motivation behind the sect's opposition to Jesus. Hypocrites, that's what he called us, Tobit scoffed, and he instructed the people to be wary of our teaching. He also called us blind guides who don't know the scriptures, another of the group complained. Jesus accused us of loving money more than we love God and of ignoring justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Surely he wasn't from God, someone else declared. He didn't even keep the Sabbath. He even dared to ask how we thought we would escape being condemned to hell, Tobit sneered. The insolence. We should be thankful that God saw fit to provide us with sufficient political power within the Sanhedrin to bring about both his trial and his crucifixion. Does, do you get the picture? Does that kind of capture it? I hope so. It was fun to write. It's, and and I, can, I can see this. I mean, I could see this, this taking place. Jesus' life was not about changing what the law said. It was all about fulfilling what the law truly means. Jesus declared that he was the son of God who had come to satisfy once for all the requirements of the law. By this declaration, he made it clear that there was a way to righteousness that transcended the law and the sacrificial ceremonies of temple worship. So that's the religious environment that we see at the beginning of the New Testament. Now, the political environment. We talked a little bit about this last week also. So Jerusalem and the region of Palestine came under the control of uh, the Roman Empire in 63 B.C. Herod the Great was appointed by the Roman uh, emperor to be the king of Judea, and he reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. The Roman governors and prefects ruled the region of Palestine throughout the New Testament period. Uh, officials, most notably Herod the Great and his three sons, as well as Pontius Pilate, were responsible for collecting taxes, maintaining order, and ensuring loyalty to the Roman Empire. The zealots, who were anti-Roman, they really sought to use violent means to overthrow the Roman oppression. There were other groups also that had a little bit more of a passive resistance uh, approach. I want to kind of um, take a couple of minutes to uh, talk about Herod the Great, one particular scene uh, that uh, is recorded in Matthew, or one, one account that's recorded in Matthew that is very, very crucial uh, when we talk about the Messiah and his coming. So I think we all know the story. Uh, the wise men see the star. They come to Jerusalem. They're looking for the one who was born to be the king of the Jews. 
And when Herod hears that these kings have come to find the king of the Jews, uh, he was somewhat troubled by that. And why do you think he was troubled? He was threatened. I mean, he was threatened, okay? Uh, and so... Uh, he tells the why he, he, he first of all he summons uh, the chief priests and the scribes and says, "Where's this king of the Jews to be born?" And they said, "Bethlehem." So he tells them and the wise men. He sends the wise men to Bethlehem to find him, and he says, "If you find him, let me know because I want to do what? I want to come and worship him, like right, you know." Uh, but that's his cover story anyway. So what happens? The the uh, the wise men don't go back to Herod because of what? Okay, they had a dream. So they don't go back, and so they return to their country another way. And Herod is ticked. I mean, he is just really upset with this. And so what does he do? What does he order? That all males under the age of two in Bethlehem in the region are killed. Okay. So Herod understood the prophecy about the king of the Jews in political terms, in, in terms of political power. And for that, he feared his own throne. Take a look at the slide and let me know what, if anything, jumps out at you when you see this slide. Esau came close to getting his revenge. In what way? What do you mean by that? Esau got his revenge. Yeah, Jacob sold his blessing. But how does this say that Esau that Herod got his revenge? Or Esau got his revenge? Try to, more specifically. More specifically, what we have here is that Herod is an Idumeum. The Idumeums are also Edomites. And the Edomites are, ascend, are descended from who? Esau. Okay, so here we see 1,800 years later, a descendant of Esau tries to kill a descendant of Jacob. Now, if you never saw a connection between the Old and New Testaments until now, hopefully you see it now. This is, and they may, every time I do that, I have goosebumps when I think about this. 1,800 years, God's thread in the story of redemption is holding true. He doesn't lose track of anybody here along the way. Uh, so to me, this is just this is an amazing. When I first learned about it, this was just like the light bulb goes on. Uh, so anyway, I hope you find that significant. Okay, so next, let's talk about uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees again in terms of their political outlook during this time. They understood the political implications of somebody who had messianic popularity. They knew that if somebody arose, say they were the Messiah uh, and possibly a king, that movement of his followers would very likely stir up the Romans in a way that they would put down what they perceived to be a rebellion, a movement that was anti-Roman. And if they did that, they would crush the movement, they would dismantle the Jewish nation, and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, would no longer have their power. So the religious establishment saw Jesus as a threat in that regard. He stirs up the Romans to to the point that they would interpret this as a rebellion. 
On the other side of the coin, we have the Jewish people themselves. What they wanted and what they desired exactly was a Messiah who would take care of the Romans and overthrow them. So we have the Jewish people in the main at odds with their religious leadership when it comes to the Messiah. Okay. And you'll remember at one point, the crowds try to take Jesus by force and make him king to use his powers to basically overthrow the Roman yoke and deliver the people from their despised bondage uh, and to inaugurate the kingdom of God all by force. And Jesus would have none of it. What the people wanted was a king to deliver them from Rome, not a savior to redeem them from their sins. And this brings us to Jesus' perspective on the political environment that he walked into. Jesus knew that the Messiahship that he was here to exercise was of a very different character than the Messiahship that was in the common Jewish mind. Jesus knew that if he self-proclaimed as the Messiah, if he said he was the Messiah, he, knowing, the, knowing the Jewish mindset, he would be arousing a false hope of political deliverance from Rome. He also knew that it would be a false hope of the establishment of an earthly messianic kingdom at that point in time. So Jesus wanted nothing to do with the term Messiah in relation to himself because of this political environment. Okay. However, he may have never made an overt claim to be the Messiah, yet he did not reject Messiahship when it was attributed to him. And we see this in Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Interestingly, Jesus, when he chose to have a title, it was what? The Son of Man. Not the Son of God, not the Messiah. But his favorite term to describe himself, the title was Son of Man, which he took from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Daniel. You talked about this last week when Kathy mentioned the four, uh, Daniel's vision and the four beasts that symbolized the four successive world empires. And one of the scriptures on the timeline from last week was Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus took the title Son of Man, he did it intentionally because the title made exalted claims of this individual in the book of Daniel. And again, if you read those, those things that this was going to happen with the Son of Man, it, it is a messianic prophecy, and it has a lot of the characteristics of the Messiah in it. Now, once the disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah, he instructed them 
on exactly what kind of Messiah he was. And it was not the Messiah that they had in their minds, like a lot of their fellow Jews did. So Jesus instructed them and said, here's the type of Messiah I'm going to be. I'm going to be a humble servant in my ministry. I'm going to deliver people from the yoke of sin, not the yoke of political oppression. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And yet, I'll come again to consummate the kingdom of God in power and glory. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection that the title Messiah was attributed to him. Now, of course, when you read the Gospels, we see it right off the bat. But the Gospels were written decades after all these events happened. So during the course of events that none of the disciples ever referred to Jesus as Messiah. Now, Peter declared when asked who the people say I am, and he said, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus said, yeah, but don't tell anybody. So uh, it's it's just fascinating to know that the reasons why Jesus didn't self-proclaim and uh, identify himself as the Messiah, it would have been an injustice and unfair to the people because they had expectations he wasn't about to fulfill. All right, group discussion number three. What is the significance of Jesus' relationship with the religious establishment to the redemptive story? We've covered a lot of territory in the last 25 minutes, so do your best with this. Take a couple of minutes and talk about it. All right, time's up. All right. Anybody from any of the tables want to share what it was that you came up with about the significance of Jesus' relationship with the religious establishment to the redemptive story? Okay, Beth. Um, We talked about different things, but one of the things was that uh, Jesus came to turn things upside down. So the relationship between Jesus and the establishment was um, really opposite. opposite. I'm not going to say opposite. Well, yeah, oppositional. And um, in my mind, the religious establishment was necessary for the people in order to see what Jesus brought. So they saw what was there, and that's what we talked about. They saw the contrast. Yes, good. Yes, sir. Okay. It was the relationship that brought him to the cross uh, to ultimately die for our sins. All right. Very good. Very good. All right. Okay. Uh, here's one key point I want to leave you with. Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees and Sadducees for putting the people in spiritual bondage, coupled with his interpretation of the Scriptures concerning himself, radically reset expectations about the Messiah. And that word radical is probably one of the best terms you can use to describe Jesus. You probably heard that before. Jesus was a radical. Well, if you spend some time really looking at it, you see how much of a radical he really was. 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis what he was trying to combat uh, in the religious establishment. <clears throat> How do we know from the Gospels that Jesus is the Messiah? Genealogy, eyewitnesses, prophecy. Examples of miracles, because he says he is. Well, he, he resisted saying he was, but he answered and said, I am. Okay, okay, good. So he said, yeah, I am. He, he acknowledged when it was ascribed to him that he was, which was, and, and he lives. He died and he lives. Uh, <clears throat> Who in the Gospels reveals that Jesus is the Messiah? John? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Gospel writers themselves. <laughs> it's kind of the answer, the Gospel writers themselves. And there are others that we will see here shortly. We know... Uh, that um, how do we know that the Gospels, uh, from the Gospels, that Jesus is Messiah? Because they tell us he is. That's what the Gospel writers were, were about. We already saw at the beginning, and we'll see this here in just a couple of minutes, uh, that at the beginning of these Gospels, they all say Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So we're going to look at uh, the New Testament witness from the Gospels specifically, uh, these verses over the next, uh, next few minutes. So we'll start with Matthew. And Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Now, Matthew was writing to primarily a Jewish audience. And so they understood this concept to some extent of Messiahship. And so he starts off by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You can't get much more pointed than that in saying, This is who this man is. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And then he goes on in the next, uh, later on in that chapter, uh, quoting Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken of by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's one of the more common Messianic references in the book of Isaiah. Okay. And then Mark, very similarly, the beginning of Mark. Uh, the beginning says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then immediately he too quotes Isaiah, another uh, set of verses. As it is written in the Isaiah of the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then we go Further down in Mark, in, uh, in chapter 15, and this is really interesting because this is how this is near the end of his gospel. So he begins the gospel with his declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. And at the very end here, we see a Roman centurion testifying to the same thing. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And in Luke, uh, we see this. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, who is speaking here? All right, the angel Gabriel, right. 
uh, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There shall be no end. And all Messianic references, just right here in the first chapter in the book, uh, in the gospel of Luke. Then in the second chapter, he says, for unto you is born this day. And who's speaking here? Another angel. I mean, here at first we had, right in the very first chapter, we have an archangel by the name of Gabriel proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And now we have here in the Christmas story uh, another angel declaring the same thing, that this day the city of David, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It could be translated, who is Messiah Adonai, or who is anointed master, or who is chosen Lord. All those convey the same thing, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then, um, you know, suddenly after this, there's this whole host of angels that testify to what was just told. Uh, and so this is a, a clear indication that, again, you know, Jesus right off the bat, you know, is the Messiah. And then we get to the Gospel of John. In the 17th verse of chapter 1, he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus, the Messiah. Now, prior to this declaration in the 17th verse, John gives us a startling bit of information about the Messiah that transcends traditional Jewish belief about the Messiah. He says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was uh, in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So here we see John declaring that the Messiah was with God in the beginning, that the Messiah was God, and that all things were made through the Messiah. Now you may say, Nowhere in those three verses do we see the mention of the Messiah. We don't see Jesus' name. We don't see Christ, that term. We don't see any of those here. But what word do we see here that stands out? What was John saying here by using this word, word? How do we know? Okay. Now, John's writing to a group of people, primarily Gentiles. Why would he use this? Why would he use this word, word? And by the way, this is the English translation. What is the Greek translation? What's the Greek term? Logos or logos. Okay, logos. Okay. <clears throat> this is significant because the term logos goes directly to the Messiah's essence, the essence of his being. Let me unpack it. In Greek thought, Logos was an instrument or a force by which God created the universe and the world. The best English translation for the word logos is thought. And as such, logos is understood to be the expressed thought of God manifested in creation and is the force that holds all things together. And in Greek thought, this is an impersonal force that emanates from God. Now, John takes this well-known concept 
and does something truly radical. He personalizes it. This is not an impersonal force. By doing so, by making this, using this term and giving it you know, personality, he gives his readers, this is original readers, a precise understanding of exactly what sort of being the Messiah was. Again, this is the Greek mind that he's trying to talk to here. Not the Jews. The Jews have their own understanding. So this is really for the Greeks. The Greek mind did not have the concept of God that the Hebrew mind did. When Jesus claimed to be God, the Jews knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they were so riled up. Blasphemy, the word that was used. Um, but the Gentiles didn't. The Gentiles who heard Jesus didn't connect the dots. But by using this term logos, John made it clear to the Greek mind what Jesus meant when he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the force that created the world. And that's why we see this used here in these first three verses in John. The word, the logos. Okay, into the Greek mind, that was like, wow. Okay. Right. Yes. Um, you know, Dale, I don't know if that's the same connection uh, here because it may well be. I'm not saying it's not. I hadn't really given that much thought. Uh, but considering that, that John is writing here to a more of a Gentile audience, I, I don't know that that would have resonated with them. But, I mean, if the Jews had read this, and you know, the educated Jews who kind of knew both, that would have resonated probably back to the, uh, the Genesis passages on creation. I, I would certainly imagine it would. Okay, group discussion number four. What is the significance of the Gospels to the redemptive story? What's the significance of the Gospels to the redemptive story? Take a few minutes to chat about that. Okay, so what is the significance of the Gospels to the redemptive story? What say ye? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, Scott. You got a gold star. <laughs> Everything. It's the record. If it wasn't for the eyewitnesses, yeah, what would we have? Well, yeah. They are the foundation. They re the, the, the Gospels reveal to us who Jesus of Nazareth is. The Gospels bear witness to Jesus being God's true Messiah. Their repeated use of Christ, Messiah, when referring to Jesus, is an unequivocal declaration of who he was and is. You find Jesus on, uh, you find the Messiah on almost every page of the Gospels. What do we know about Jesus' baptism? It was in the Jordan River. 
Heaven opened up afterwards, and what, Scott? God spoke, and what did he say? Okay, this is my beloved son, who I'm well pleased, and what else happened when heaven opened up? Spirit came down, okay, and lighted on him like a dove. Okay, what else do we know? John really didn't want to do it, and why was that? Yes, John felt unworthy to even tie Jesus' sandals. So why would he baptize him? You know, of course. Um, good question. Okay. Which? All right. Okay. Right. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> oh. Well, um, I was in Israel in April, and we I, we had a similar experience when we were at um, uh, the. We were at the, the building, which is uh, where the upper room, room is. And across the way, there is this, this, uh, this church called uh, the Church of Peter. Uh, church of Peter. Uh, and St. Peter's Church. And um, we were you know, just you know, t- talking. And, uh, and it came to mind you know, that, that Peter denied Jesus three times. And we were talking about that. And just at that moment, a rooster crowed. I kid you not. It was like awesome. <laughs> it was really awesome. Okay. Yes. Well, that begs the question then, Kathy, because that's right here on my notes, is we did. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you'll get your ice cream later. Uh, well, why was Jesus baptized? Why did John baptize him? So there's the question of the hour. Why was Jesus baptized? Yeah, but that uh, that purification uh, wasn't a baptism per se, uh, and and John's baptism was a baptism. But still, why was Jesus baptized? Okay. Hopefully what we're going to cover in the next few minutes will be worth the price of admission. Yes, sir. Thank you, because that's exactly where we're going now. Why don't you just go ahead, give this man a microphone, and let him read, read this. Where's the microphone? So. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Great. Thank you. All right. The nature of John the Baptist's baptism is that it is not the same as our Christian baptism. Do not confuse the two. It is distinctly different. The baptism that John administered was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In essence, it was a pledge that his followers took to separate themselves from the polluted world culturally and spiritually they found themselves in in order to prepare themselves for receiving the coming Messiah who would be the one to offer remission of their sins. So, Jesus, who was without sin, had no need to repent. So why was he baptized? Jesus answers the question, as we just read. Okay. In verse 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, consented. The phrase all righteousness here could have been translated this way. Imagine Jesus saying this to John. <clears throat> we must do whatever is just, fit, and necessary in our circumstances in accordance with the ordained will of God. Even though the Old Testament law did not require a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, God had ordained John the Baptist to perform such a baptism in order to prepare people for the Messiah's coming. Okay. By being baptized in water by the one God had sent to proclaim and prepare the way of the coming Messiah, Jesus legitimized John's mission. He legitimized John's ministry. That's one. Okay, so again, by being baptized in water by the one God had called and sent to prepare the way of the coming Messiah, Jesus legitimized John's ministry. Okay, but we find the real significance of what happened in verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God ascending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Okay. <clears throat> this echoes Isaiah 42.1. Uh, which is one of the Messianic passages in the Old Testament. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, my Messiah, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now, remember what we said earlier about uh, the anointing of the Messianic kings. The anointing by God's representative provided authorization for the anointed to act on God's behalf. This is exactly what we're seeing here when heaven opens up 
and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus. This is his anointing that establishes authority and authorizes him to serve as God's Messiah. That's the significance of his baptism. It has nothing to do with sins. It has to do with his mission as the Son of God and the Messiah. And by the way, those two things are separate. Jesus' sonship precedes his Messiahship. Jesus was God's Son for all eternity. He became God's Messiah at his baptism by the Spirit. We all clear? Let that sink in for a second. Okay. So we further glean from this that they say it all again, starting where? <laughs> so, okay, okay. Jesus, Jesus' sonship precedes his messiahship. They're not synonymous. Okay. Jesus was God's son from all eternity. He became God's Messiah at the anointing by the Spirit at his baptism which authorized him to serve as God's Messiah. From this, we can further glean that Jesus' Messiahship is not of the earthly messianic king type. It is a heavenly son of God type of Messiahship. Again, his Messiahship was different than the concept that was resonant in the popular Jewish mind. Of the day. Okay. Okay. Quick discussion. What is the significance of Jesus' baptism to the redemptive story? Let me go ahead and just kind of give you this. <laughs> Move on here. The anointing of the Spirit of God at his baptism authorized Jesus to fulfill his role as God's chosen Messiah. That's your takeaway. Now we're going to wrap up talking about Jesus' temptation, or Jesus' temptations, because he was really tempted three times. Okay. Tell me what you know about Jesus' temptations. Anybody, just tell me something. What do we know? 40 days. 40 days he was where? Yes. What else? Hmm? Okay, one was up on the mountain. Hmm? What else? Oh, fasting? Okay. What else? He won. Don't get ahead of the story, Betty. I didn't show you my notes. Okay. <laughs> okay, it was right after the baptism. Hold on to that thought. That's significant. In all his ways, he was just like us, but... Ooh, it mimicked the garden and what? In the wilderness. Okay. This is good. Good stuff. What? He answered back with Scripture. This is all good stuff. This is, this is all great. Okay. <clears throat> so, and, and that's a good point. I'm going I'm to jump off from there. It's a common interpretation of this uh, part of Jesus' life uh, that I've heard on more than one occasion from Bible teachers and others. And it goes something like this, that Jesus temptations uh, are a model for Christians to follow uh, when we ourselves are tempted. Because when Jesus was tempted, he did so, but he resisted the temptations. Uh, and we should resist in similar ways. And the ways in which he, he uh, resisted was, he quoted scripture. 
Okay, and we as Christians can certainly do the same. When we feel ourselves being tempted uh, by Satan's influence, we can quote Scripture to combat that. And that's all good, and it's all right, and it's all proper, and it's all wonderful, but it is fall far short of the real significance of what's happening here in these temptations. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, The Holy Spirit, says that Jesus' temptations constitute an epical event, exclamation point. Okay. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as Scott just pointed out a minute ago, Jesus' baptism immediately is followed by his temptations by Satan. Mark, in his gospel, uses the phrase, at once. So we read about Jesus' baptism, and then at once he went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan. And it's interesting to note that when Satan begins his temptations of Jesus, he says this, if you are the Son of God, if you, you know, that's kind of reminiscent of what happened. If, you know, so if you are the Son of God, of course, he knew Jesus was the Son of God. But what was he doing here? If you are the Son of God, then you can do pretty much anything. So he's tempting Jesus to use, you know, his powers. Okay. But he didn't say, if you were the Messiah. He said, if you were the Son of God. Because Satan knew that as the Son of God, Jesus could have called down angels to help him out. And the angels did minister to him during this time, but they didn't help him out during the temptations. Okay. And that's what Satan was, you know, was kind of tempting him to do. So the temptations took place. There were three of them, and they took uh, place in three locations. One of the locations was in a desert region, which is probably the lower Jordan Valley, just north of the Dead Sea. Secondly, a high mountain, which more than likely may have been an abrupt cliff near the city of Jericho, east of Jerusalem, that offers a panoramic view of the area. Uh, and the third is the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is tempted to do three things. Reject God's words as the true source of life. And his response was, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was tempted to test God's care for him. And he responds by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he was tempted with the promise of universal rule in exchange for worshiping another instead of God. To me, this last one is the most insidious of the temptations. In Matthew 4, 8, and 9, we read, The devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. John Piper, in his book, Come Lord Jesus, says in, about this episode, in effect, Satan is saying, I will give you the rulership over all the world's kingdoms and their glory if you will worship me. Jesus, and this is fascinating, Jesus does not deny that Satan can do this. It is not a laughable proposition as if Satan had no claim on the kingdoms of the world. On three occasions in the book of John, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. So this begs the question, why was Satan willing to give up the world? Why was Satan willing to give up rulership of all the kingdoms of the world? Give it to Jesus. Give all that authority to Jesus. What? 
He was lying, but it was a valid proposition. Jesus could have, said, Jesus could have accepted the proposition, the offer. If Jesus had worshipped Satan, he couldn't save his people. True. Satan sees that the one who is worshipped overall is the one for whom all exists. By offering Jesus the deal, if Jesus has accepted, Satan would have lost nothing. Are you with me? Satan sees that the one who is worshipped over all is the one for whom all exists. So if Jesus had accepted and worshipped Satan, Satan would have Jesus worship, but Satan would also be the one who was over everything. Got it? Jesus becomes, exactly, he becomes a vassal. And Jesus' reply to Satan here is, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The irony here is you see, Jesus kind of knows everything. Satan doesn't. And by fulfilling his messianic role and his mission, Jesus, in the end, is both the ruler of all and worshiped over all. He gets what Satan was offering him anyway. And he, he knew he would. But if Jesus had failed in any of these temptations, but specifically this last one, it would have been game, set, match, Satan. Okay. And as someone's already mentioned, this whole episode here, this account, is a return, as a rerun, should say, a rerun of Eden. Don't make any mistake about this. This is what was happening here. This is a rerun of Eden, but fortunately, with an entirely different outcome. Yes, uh, yeah, Jesus is the second Adam. Okay? So this is a cosmic encounter with eternal implications. A cosmic encounter with eternal implications. <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, again, on, on, on the Holy Spirit, says this. Like Adam before him, Jesus was incited by Satan to be as God and to reject God's word. But he chose the way of God-glorifying obedience and suffering instead in the power of the Spirit. Jesus advanced as the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his people for their salvation. The longer-term consequence was that having beaten back Satan on his own territory, Jesus was now in a position to carry out his mission as God's chosen Messiah. Don't lose the connection between his baptism account and his temptation account. Because here's what's happening. In his baptism account, Jesus was anointed and authorized to be God's Messiah. In his temptation account, he sets a beachhead for defeating Satan. Satan is pretty much done here because Jesus won the day. He didn't fall for the temptations. And now, it was just and it, and even then, and through this period of time, until he comes back, this is just a um, guerrilla warfare. That was going on. Satan's pretty much done. 
But for whatever reason, God in his sovereignty is allowing him to conduct a guerrilla war until Jesus' second coming. So this connection between the, the baptism and his temptations is real, and it is powerful. Please don't miss it. So let's summarize this summary statement here as we wrap up. Uh, and this comes from jo- uh, George Eldon Ladd, again, his book, A Theology of the New Testament. <clears throat> he says this, The Messianic mission of Jesus has as its objective the preparation of men and women for the future kingdom of God. They are delivered from the bondage of Satan's kingdom and from slavery to sin and experience an inner righteousness that is entirely the gracious work of God. It was the Messianic mission of Jesus to bring the history of God's redemptive purpose to a great climax. The centrality of the person and work of Jesus the Messiah in the history of redemption is the key to the entire Bible. The whole New Testament bears explicit testimony to this fact, and the Old Testament cannot be properly understood apart from it. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, the future kingdom is not only guaranteed, but people may already experience the powers of the future kingdom and the reality of the blessings from the salvation it brings. Last week, Kathy mentioned that we are in the in-between period of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. The already, but not yet. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It was inaugurated at Jesus' first coming. It will be consummated at Jesus' second coming. And during this period of time, we are the beneficiaries of what Jesus has done for this um, inter-advent period of time. We all good? Okay. What questions do you have? Not that I can answer them. I'm just going to ask. I can make. Uh, I um, yes. I will give. I will. I will give Sarah. I will give Sarah the slide deck and all of my notes. Thank you. So you can have all of my notes. And the slide deck, if that would be helpful. Okay. Oh, yes. Uh, Yes, Betty. Uh, I don't have a definitive answer for that, Betty. Why he, you know, used that particular thing about, uh, you know, the, the, the turning, you know, the hearts of the, you know, parents to their children and, you know, children to their parents. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I can speculate, but that's all it would be, would be speculation. So, okay. Anything else? Okay. Uh, yes, sir. What was the importance of the fasting before during uh, his time in the wilderness? You know, fasting is a good uh, way to uh, help you divest yourself of just some of the pleasures of the world and and give yourself a sense of when it comes down to what is it that you have besides God? You know, that's my that's my take. Somebody else gave you something different, but that's kind of kind of my take. I know we covered a lot tonight. That's why you're going to get the notes and everything. But I thank you for your, you know, your interaction and your participation and everything. So uh, I hope it was helpful.
and bringing us forward in our understanding of God's redemptive story. So let me close with some prayer. Father God, we are beyond grateful that you have sent your anointed, your Christ, your Messiah, your son Jesus, to be our deliverer, our savior, our redeemer. We thank you that he has inaugurated your kingdom that is even now growing and one day will eventually become the eternal kingdom reigned by your son eternally. We thank you for your care for us, your provision for us, and your love for us. May you bless us now and all that we do as we leave this place. And may we be your witnesses boldly in the week ahead as you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.